The concept of blaspheming the Holy Spirit demonstrates that if one is exposed to a certain amount of truth concerning God, yet chooses to reject Him, God may harden their heart and blind their eyes. Hello and welcome to the Millennial Apologist Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan. And in this episode, we are going to be discussing the doctrine of reprobation. And we're going to be looking into how that might help answer uh, some of these questions that Christians have about violence in the Old Testament, uh, such as God flooding the world in the days of Noah, God destroying the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and God instructing the Israelites to specifically wipe out other nations. So before getting into this topic, I just want to preface this episode by acknowledging that the practice of following feelings rather than truth has permeated the Western culture. And unfortunately, this attitude has also seeped into many churches. Now, one of the most popular feel-good phrases thrown around in churches today is that God never gives up on anybody. And this belief inevitably leads to the conclusion that it is never too late for anyone to believe on Jesus as Savior, and that God will love everybody unconditionally forever. And while it's nice to think that this is true, we must consult the Bible to test the validity of this belief. Remember, we must submit to God's word rather than what we want to be true. If one believes that it is never too late to believe on Jesus and receive salvation, then passages such as the Canaanite genocide ordered by God, David's killing of Goliath, etc. have a deep level of discomfort. And this is because if the Canaanites could have still received Jesus as Savior, but God ordered the Israelites to kill them anyway, Wasn't God robbing the Canaanites of their opportunity to repent and get saved for eternity? This discomfort is relieved, however, if one understands the biblical doctrine of reprobation. Contrary to what most churches in America will tell you, it actually is possible for somebody to reach a point of no return where God has given up on them. This means that no matter what these people do, they have forfeited their ability to receive salvation and therefore have been sealed for eternal damnation. When God has given up on someone, they have reached a mental state known as reprobation. Reprobation can be defined as the state in which one has been rejected by God, and therefore it is impossible for them to accept the gospel and get saved. In the Old Testament, Jeremiah 6.30 states, Reprobate silver shall men call them, because the Lord has rejected them. Notice how this verse equates the word reprobate with the word rejected. Now, before relating the doctrine of reprobation to the divinely sanctioned violence in the Old Testament, let's look at some verses which prove that human beings can reach a state of reprobation and how this happens. Perhaps one of the most clear passages which teaches the doctrine of reprobation is Hebrews 6 verses 4 to 6 which state that it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, 
to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified of themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Now, the text is very clear here that once somebody has been enlightened with a certain amount of truth about God, but they choose to reject him, then it is impossible for them to be renewed to repentance. Verse 4 specifically states that it is impossible to renew these people to repentance. Notice that this passage does not say somebody will reach this state if they sleep around one too many times, get drunk one too many times, or anything like that. One does not reach a state of reprobation because they have committed too many sins. Rather, one can only reach this state of reprobation if they have gained a certain degree of enlightenment concerning God and have outright rejected him. Perhaps the most well-known passage which relates to this topic is Jesus' statement concerning blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. In Mark 3 verses 28 to 29, Jesus said that all sin shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they commit. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. In the very next verse after this statement, Mark tells us that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit occurred when one witnessed the miracles of Jesus, but attributed his power to the devil. And this is consistent with the details of reprobation we just read in Hebrews 6, because this passage also explains that exposure to the power and truth of God is a prerequisite to becoming reprobate. This is because blaspheming the Holy Spirit only occurred after one saw one of the most convincing evidences God could provide, namely the miraculous power of Jesus. John 12 verses 37 to 40 also talks about blaspheming the Holy Spirit and states that even though Jesus had done so many miracles before the Jews, they believed not on him, that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah also said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. Notice that John is stating here that God himself has blinded people's eyes and hardened their hearts. What's even more extreme is that the reason God has done this to people is so that they cannot be converted and be healed. Again, the divine hardening described here in John 12 is congruent with the divine hardening explained in Hebrews 6 and Mark 3, because in all of these instances, God only hardens people's hearts after they have been exposed to him. The concept of blaspheming the Holy Spirit demonstrates that if one is exposed to a certain amount of truth concerning God, yet chooses to reject him, God may harden their heart and blind their eyes, so they will be unable to have the mental ability to believe on Jesus as their Savior in the future. The doctrine of reprobation can also be seen in 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 10 to 12, which state that during the end times, those who follow the Antichrist receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, 
but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So just like the previous passages we have looked at, notice that this passage also indicates that the reason God gives people over to a reprobate mind is due to their rejection of being sufficiently exposed to the truth of God. It specifically says here that the reason God sends these people delusion is because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. So these people here were exposed to enough truth about God. They had that light bulb moment where they could have accepted God and been saved, but they chose to reject him. And because of that, God sent them delusion. This passage also reveals that the purpose of God giving people over to a state of reprobation is so that they all might be damned. Paul is explicitly stating here that if people reject the truth of God, then God may choose to send them delusion concerning the gospel so that they will end up burning in hell for eternity. Now, this is obviously a very sad and uncomfortable topic to talk about, but it's what the Bible says. Another example of reprobation is seen in the Bible's description of the mark of the beast. Revelation 14 verses 9 to 11 note that during the end times, if any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. The Bible is clear here that whoever takes the mark of the beast in the end times will end up being tormented with fire and brimstone, and that the smoke of their torment will ascend up forever and ever. This means that whatever the mark of the beast will be, it must involve some sort of major blasphemy against the truth of God, or perhaps it will result in the alteration of one's mental state. Regardless, the text strongly implies that anyone who receives the mark of the beast will become reprobate. It must be noted that, as we discussed in the previous episode of this podcast, Christians can never lose their salvation. So therefore, no true Christian will take the mark of the beast. Not only will God protect Christians from being deceived into unknowingly taking the mark, as noted by Jesus in Matthew 24, 24, but it is also reasonable to conclude that if a Christian was hypothetically about to take the mark of the beast, God would simply kill their physical body before they got to that point. The bottom line is that if you're a Christian living in the end times, you don't have to worry about the mark of the beast because God will protect you from it because he is the one who holds your salvation. And it's interesting to note that the state of reprobation is similar to the state of being a Christian in that once somebody reaches one of these two states, their eternal destinies have already been sealed. If someone becomes reprobate, then they will end up in hell no matter what. But if one becomes a Christian, then they will end up in heaven no matter what. Furthermore, the Bible implies that God actually tampers with one's mental state after they reach one of these two states, because while reprobates are unable to mentally grasp the gospel, Christians are unable to be deceived by major heresies. 
And as we just noted, that was implied by Jesus in Matthew 24, 24, as well as other verses. And now specific characters in the Bible who appear to have been reprobate include the Pharaoh of the Exodus. Uh, we see that this happened with Pharaoh in the book of Exodus because he heard the word of God in Exodus 5.1, and he also witnessed clear miracles from God in Exodus 7.10. Since Pharaoh rejected God's revelation to him, God ended up hardening Pharaoh's heart, and his eternal fate was sealed. What's interesting is that Exodus states that at the beginning, Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and this can be seen in Exodus 8 verses 15 and 32. However, after Pharaoh chose to harden his own heart, the wording changes and says that God was the one who started to harden Pharaoh's heart. And this can be seen in Exodus chapter 9, verse 12, and chapter 10, verses 20 and 27. Another example is found in 1 Timothy 1, verses 18 to 20. In this passage, Paul tells Timothy about false prophets in his day who are named Hymenaeus and Alexander, and says that he has delivered them unto Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Another example, as discussed earlier, would be the Pharisees who blasphemed the Holy Spirit, because as soon as they did this and they rejected God's revelation to them, Jesus said that they would never have forgiveness for that. Paul also says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that in the end times, there will be some people who are ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And Paul describes these people as men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith. So here we have seen four clear examples of people who the Bible implies have reached this state of reprobation. And even though the Bible does teach about reprobation, I just want to provide a word of caution when studying this doctrine. And I want to be very clear about this. Anyone and I mean anyone who is able to understand the gospel and come to Christ can be saved. Because Jesus said in John 6:37 that he who comes to me I will in no wise cast out. The doctrine of reprobation does not say that God rejects some people who call upon his name. Because the Bible is clear that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you can call upon the name of the Lord, if you're able to make that mental step, then yes, you can be saved. However, the doctrine of reprobation does say that some people are not able to come to Christ because they have already understood the truth, but outright rejected God and hardened their own hearts. So you see the difference there. Anyone who comes to Christ can be saved. The issue with reprobation is that if someone is reprobate, then God has hardened their heart to the point where they can never come to Christ. So they are unable to make that mental step of humbling themselves and denying themselves and accepting the gospel. But if anybody has a desire to come to Christ and they are able to call upon the name of the Lord, yes, of course, they will be saved. It's also important to note that some people may have to hear and reject the gospel just one time to reach this point while another person may have to hear and reject the gospel 1,000 times to reach this point. Because everyone is different, the specific point in which somebody would reach a state of reprobation due to the rejection of God will obviously vary from person to person. Therefore, we need to use discernment and not just give up on someone if they aren't receptive the first time we share the gospel with them. 
This is because the Bible does not give a specific number of gospel rejections in which God finally chooses to give one over to a reprobate mind. It appears that it depends heavily on how well they have mentally received and truly understood major truths of God. Another way to think of it is this. Jesus said that he will draw all men unto him in John 12:32. Think of one's reception to God's draw and their understanding of him as water, and think of human beings as empty cups. The amount of water in each cup will fluctuate throughout one's life, as sometimes the things of God are heavily on people's minds, while other times people are just cruising through their existence without really thinking about God. However, once someone reaches a point where their understanding of God and his work is sufficient, their cup is filled to the top with water, and it is at this point that they must make their decision to follow him or not. If they deny him when they get to this point, then they will become reprobate, while if they accept him, then they will become a Christian. The thing is, many people walk through life with their cup half full because they never really seek out the things of God and they ignore his draw. Think of the Pharisees who became reprobate when they blasphemed the Holy Spirit. They may have had their cups half full until they physically witnessed Jesus perform miracles. However, witnessing the power and words of Jesus would have been so convincing that it naturally resulted in their cups being filled with water, at which point, instead of accepting the gospel, they rejected it, and, as we read in Mark and John, their hearts were hardened so they would never get forgiveness. One objection to the doctrine of reprobation is to claim that Paul said he was the worst of sinners, yet he ended up getting saved. Therefore, if Paul was not reprobate and he called himself the worst of sinners, how could anyone be reprobate? While this may seem like a convincing argument, if we read the verses surrounding Paul's statement, then it becomes clear that this passage actually ends up supporting the doctrine of reprobation. In 1 Timothy 1, verses 12-15, Paul states that, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me, for he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer, and a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. But I obtained mercy, because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all exception, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Notice that Paul says here that he obtained mercy because he did such actions ignorantly in unbelief. Even though Paul had Christians persecuted and even killed, God had mercy on Paul because he had not yet been enlightened with significant understanding of God. This supports the doctrine of reprobation because it is congruent with the verses we already observed which state that God will only harden somebody's heart if they are exposed to a certain degree of truth. The only sin God will turn someone reprobate for is the sin of completely rejecting him after they have gained sufficient knowledge of the gospel. God doesn't harden somebody's heart because they've slept around too many times or they've gotten drunk one too many times. Rather, reprobation can only occur when one has a sufficient mental grasp of God. And as we saw earlier, this is exclusively noted in Hebrews 6 verses 4 to 6, 
when it states that people become reprobate after they have been enlightened, heard the word of God, and experienced the Holy Spirit. Notice that all of the elements which lead to reprobation include experiencing God and rejecting him. And it must be noted that there are other passages in the Bible which describe the state of reprobation. Romans 1 is perhaps the most significant passage that we did not cover, which talks about this subject, uh, because I'm going to save that for a whole nother episode. And I just wanted to point this out to show that there is even more support for the doctrine of reprobation than what we even covered, and I encourage you to diligently study it. Alright, so now we're going to get into how the doctrine of reprobation explains the genocide ordered by God in the Old Testament. Though it is uncomfortable to hear, we have just seen that the Bible does teach that a human being can reach a state of no return in which they can never come to the truth of God and be saved. Now, most Christians don't have any problem accepting the Bible's clear teaching that unbelievers have their eternal state sealed directly upon death. Once somebody dies without believing on Jesus, then their eternal fate in hell is sealed, as seen in Luke 16 verses 19 to 31, John 8:24, Hebrews 9:27, etc. The doctrine of reprobation simply takes that idea one step further and states that sometimes one's eternal state can be sealed before they physically die. It should be noted that this is the case for believers too, because once somebody is saved, they can never lose their salvation. So just like those who are reprobate, the Christian also has had their eternal destination sealed before they have physically died. Christians will just go to a very different destination than those who are reprobate, of course. While the idea of some people having their eternal fate sealed before death may be uncomfortable to hear, another uncomfortable truth the Bible teaches is that every unbeliever will be punished in eternal hellfire and have no rest day or night because of their sin. Now, obviously suffering eternal torment in hell is infinitely worse than having your physical body killed. See, the primary tragedy of an unbeliever's death is not the destruction of their physical body. Rather, it's that their eternal fate is now sealed and they will suffer eternity in hell. However, if one had reached the state of reprobation and therefore already had their fate in hell sealed before they had died, then from an eternal perspective, there's really no spiritual tragedy about their physical death because no matter what would have happened in their life, they would inevitably end up in hell. The true tragedy in a reprobate's life is not when they physically die. Rather, it's the moment when they rejected the truth of God so sternly that their heart was forever hardened to the gospel. What's interesting is that certain passages in the Old Testament imply that God would only destroy a whole group of people if everybody in that group was reprobate. For example, when Abraham was bargaining with God about God's plan to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18 verses 23 to 33, Abraham stated that it was unfair for God to destroy the righteous with the wicked. He asked God if he would spare the city if there were 50 righteous people in it, and God said he would. Abraham then continues to bargain with God, asking if he would destroy the city if there were only 45 righteous people, and then 40, and then 30, 20, and 10. 
and God agrees to spare the city every time. Though Abraham never asked God if he would spare the city for just one righteous person, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah demonstrates that God indeed would spare an entire city if there was only one righteous person in it. And this can be seen in that immediately when Lot left the city with his family, God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with fire from heaven. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah implies that God would only sanction the destruction of an entire group of people if all of them had reached the state of reprobation. Hence, the only reason God ordered the Israelites to exterminate entire groups of people when they came to the promised land is because everyone in these nations had reached this state of reprobation. This is supported by Genesis 15:16, when God promises Abraham that his offspring would inherit the promised land. God specifically tells Abraham that his offspring would not inherit the land for another four centuries because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. So here God is saying, hey Abraham, your offspring is going to inherit this land, but it's going to have to wait about 400 years because the iniquity of the people that live there right now is not yet full. So it appears that during Abraham's time, there were still some people who either were saved or had the ability to get saved living in the promised land. And that's why God waited 400 years until they all reached this wicked state of reprobation to finally send the Israelites in there and wipe out these other nations. And uh, just to cite a few of those passages which show God instructing the Israelites to wipe out peoples of other nations. Uh, here we have Deuteronomy 20 verses 16 to 18, which God is saying to the Israelites that the cities of these people, which the Lord thy God has given you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall utterly destroy them, namely the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord thy God has commanded thee, that they teach you not to do after all their abominations, which they have done unto their gods. We have 1 Samuel 15 verse 3, uh, where God gives the instruction to go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And we have Joshua 11 verse 20, which states that it was of the Lord to harden their hearts, that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might destroy them utterly. And notice here again, there's this language of God hardening their hearts, hardening these wicked people's hearts who have rejected the truth of God so that they may be destroyed. And all these nations that God had Israel destroy were in the promised land. And these were the nations during the time of Abraham that were still somewhat decent, which still had some people in it that could be saved or were saved. And that is why God specifically tells Abraham that his offspring will not inherit this land for another four centuries because the iniquity of the people living there is not yet full. And we see amazing consistency in the Old Testament because four centuries later, when Moses led the Israelites into the promised land, God instructs the Israelites in Deuteronomy 20 verses 16 to 18 to utterly destroy them as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee. And so this usually brings up the question, what about the children? You know, what about the babies and the kids that were living in these cities? 
Well, the Bible implies that those who do not have the knowledge of good and evil, such as children, infants, and some mentally challenged people, will enter into heaven because they will not be judged due to their ignorance of good and evil. And think back to the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve were created, they had no knowledge of good and evil. But God told them that if they choose to gain this knowledge of good and evil, then they will die. And that's what happens when we obtain this knowledge of good and evil. As Genesis 1-3 to states, we become more like God because we are able to recognize morality. Instead of just blissfully walking with God in innocence and ignorance, when we choose to gain this knowledge of good and evil and start to make judgments on morality, God is going to judge us accordingly. And that's why people who have no knowledge of good and evil, such as children, um, would not be judged. And so they would not have to fear hellfire if they died because they were innocent and they were ignorant of the knowledge of good and evil. And this can be seen in Paul's statement in Romans 7 verse 9 that he was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And now some commentators believe that Paul here is referring to when he was a child and had not yet reached a state where he lost his childlike innocence and gained the knowledge of good and evil. This position is also supported in 2 Samuel 12 when King David was mourning the loss of his infant child. He said that, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. And now David was described as a man after God's own heart and was clearly saved. And it appears that he believed his infant child's soul resided in the same place that his soul would go to upon death. And another verse which implies that children who have no knowledge of good and evil will not be judged by God is Deuteronomy 1 verse 39. Um, and this is when God shows mercy on the Israelites' children because they had no knowledge between good and evil. And again, this relates back to the Garden of Eden when man had no knowledge of good and evil. They were not under God's judgment. They were just walking with God in a blissful, ignorant state. So if we utilize the doctrine of reprobation to alleviate the apparent tension between the love of God and the destruction of entire cities in the Old Testament ordered by God, we see that every adult in these cities had already rejected God to the point of reaching a state of reprobation and therefore had their eternal fate in hell sealed already, and that the children who had no knowledge of good and evil, who were in these cities, who were executed, went directly to paradise upon their death. I know this is a brutal subject, especially for modern people who have grown up in first world countries, but logically, the doctrine of reprobation does provide a sufficient answer to the violence commanded by God in the Old Testament. So, to sum up this episode, here are the three main points we discussed. 1. Once somebody dies without accepting Christ as their Savior, they have missed their opportunity to get saved and have therefore sealed their fate for eternal damnation in hell. However, the Bible also teaches that if somebody is enlightened with enough truth concerning God and chooses to reject Him, God can in turn harden their heart so they no longer have the mental ability to accept the gospel and they therefore have their fate sealed before physical death. And it is very important to note that this is not some arbitrary action. It's not like God just randomly chooses, oh, this person's going to be reprobate. This person is going to be saved for eternity based on nothing they do. 
because we see here all the verses which discuss the doctrine of reprobation which we looked at in Mark 3, 28-29, John 12, 37-40, Hebrews 6, 4-6, 2 Thessalonians 2, 10-12, Revelation 14, 10-11, and 2 Timothy 3. In all of these passages, it is clear that God only gives people over to the state of reprobation if they have been exposed to enough truth about God to be enlightened to a certain degree, and they choose to actively reject God. God is drawing them closer to him. He is pulling them in. He wants all men to be saved. He is trying desperately to have a relationship with these people, but they choose to reject him. That is when one reaches a state of reprobation. It's not because they've slept around one too many times or gotten drunk one too many times. It's not because God just randomly chooses people who he's going to make reprobate and go to hell for eternity. It's all about them coming to this knowledge of the truth about God and rejecting him. And if you look at all the passages concerning this doctrine, you'll see that in every case, it's about people being exposed to the truth of God and rejecting it. And so that was our first point from this episode. Our second point made in this episode was that according to implications present in scripture, God would only destroy an entire group of people if every one of them was reprobate. Therefore, there is no perceived injustice in God's destruction of such groups because they were already going to burn in hell for eternity anyways. So it's not as if God has robbed them of their chance to get saved before they die. Furthermore, since God is the only viable explanation for any basis for morality, human beings are in no place to question God's moral character anyway. Um, and so now our third point that was made in this episode was that God never rejects people who actually come to him and ask him for salvation. And that is so important. Anyone who calls upon Jesus shall be saved. So it doesn't matter what you've done. If you are able, and that's the key phrase, if you are able to call upon the name of the Lord and accept the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus will in no wise cast you out. Jesus said, all who comes to me, I will not cast out. He will not reject anybody if they can come to him. However, if someone has already understood the truth and then has chosen to reject it, at a certain point, God may choose to harden their heart so they never have the desire to call upon his name. And that is all we have time for today on this podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. I hope this helped alleviate some of the tension you may have felt um, about the violence commanded in the Old Testament. Have a good day. Bye.